um, Buffett's um, webinar series of this quarter. Um, our theme is um, SDG uh, 13, uh, Climate Action. Um, and today we have a, a wonderful panel of uh, speakers uh, that will talk about the role of um, activism, uh, social movements and advocacy um, in um, driving climate action. Um, and we, we title it somehow provocatively, you know, whether that can actually save the world um, or not. Um, we have uh, three wonderful panelists. Um, we have uh, Braden King, who is a, a professor at, at Kellogg, uh, and my colleague, um, where he's also the McGaw Chair of uh, Environmental Management. Um, we have uh, Katie McFadden, um, who is um, uh, at the Sierra Club, um, is the uh, Illinois um, head of the Sierra Club. And then uh, we will have um, uh, Phil, who will join us um, as soon as he can. Um, so I'll introduce him when he actually joins um, and, uh, uh, and do a quick introduction. Uh, the order of um, uh, the initial statements um, is that Braden will start us off, um, then Katie, and then Phil. Um, so I turn it over to Braden. Great. So let me just put my slides up. So first, let me uh, thank Klaus and the Buffett Institute for inviting um, us to do this session. Um, I love to talk about activism, and it's even more fun when I get to do so with, with activists. And so I'm excited to be on this panel with Katie and, and Phil when he gets here. Um, my own research has focused a lot on um, how social movements uh, can uh, lead change. Like, what do they do? What are the mechanisms that make um, activists have an impact on the world. And it's certainly the case, we know from you know, lots of historical um, archival research that social movements have been integral to a lot of societal transformations in our world. It's hard to imagine how we would um, be living in a world where you're seeing progress on racial justice or um, advancing the cause of LGBTQ uh, movement without people doing stuff, without people engaging in protests, other forms of collective action uh, to make to to advance their cause, and the environmental movement you know, certainly counts among the most successful social movements in pushing for change. Um, I think it's now become an iconic movement of our time. Um, it rose, of course, in the 1960s um, with sort of an emphasis on conservationism, and and how it now is of course leading the charge to combat um, its biggest challenge, the world's biggest challenge, I believe, which is climate change. And um, the question we're asking today is, you know, how do activists convince the world's powers uh, to change the ways of running the economy, to change the ways of, of regulating um, emissions and pollutants in order to prevent climate change from happening? Um, I want to present just basically a few facts of, that we know from research and then talk a bit about what I see as the challenges for the environmental movement going forward. So the first fact, I think, is one that's fairly uncontroversial, which is that the environmental movement is growing in, in scale, um, just the sheer number of organizations, but also the number of people who are participating in some way or another um, in the environmental movement is, has never, never been bigger. Um, before uh, COVID sort of shut down a lot of collective action, the environmental movement was really gaining a lot of steam. 2019 was a monumental year for environmental protests. Um, in the week of the climate strike, more than 7.6 million people around the globe participated in protests and marches. 
Um, and this was not just in the uh, United States or in Europe, it was around, around the world in, all, in every continent. Um, in New Zealand alone, 3.5% um, of their population participated um, in demonstrations that week. And these protests, of course, are just one of many. I think you could look over the years and see that the, the size of the protests have, have been increasing gradually, um, including many of the climate marches that were around events such as the, the Paris uh, Treaty that was, that was done a few years ago. And I think what's impressive about them is just how grassroots oriented they are, where they're bringing together young people, older people, families to, to make their voices heard. And so the size of the movement, I think, is one important fact to, to, to make us feel hopeful, certainly about the role of activism. The second fact um, has to do, I think, with the role of the environmental movement in the broader sphere of social movement, progressive activism, for sure. Um, and that is that the, the fact is that it's becoming more and more central. If you go back to the 1960s, the movement was fairly peripheral. The figure that you're looking at is from a study that I did with Busak Jung, a former colleague of my, a former student of mine who's now at HEC Paris, and Sarah Sol at Stanford. And what we found is that over time, the movement has become more and more central in the social network of activists who participate in protests. And um, by central, I mean that it's sort of, you think of it as like an organizing hub, where when you're peripheral, you're kind of on your own and isolated from other activist groups as you become, as the movement becomes more central, we find activists from other communities, other causes joining up with environmentalism as a way to push for change. Um, some examples of that, I think, are pretty evident. You see now the, the, the cause of racial justice is becoming integrated with an environmental movement as environmental justice, recognizing that oftentimes those two those two things, racism and the destruction of the environment, go together. Um, that is that people of who are uh, discriminated against um, are oftentimes the ones who are bearing the larger brunt, the larger costs of, of environmental damage. And of course, the labor and human rights movement has focused more their um, effort on how to improve environmental conditions, um, especially because the economies of the poorest countries are being the greatest, most, most affected by the climate change. So as a result of that, the, the movement is more diverse than ever. Um, it is uh, globally and you know, within our own country quite diverse. The third fact I wanna to point to is uh, about, has to do with the sorts of tactics, tactics that social movements use, that the environmental movement uses, um, and um, how that kind of fits within the overall strategy of the movement. So the movement is becoming more tactically diverse. This is um, this figure that you're looking at here is from a study that I did with Laura Nelson, who's now at um, uh, Northeastern moving to University of British Columbia in the fall. And in this study, we looked at um, all of the media coverage related to the environmental movement, um, that is movement organizations, um, since from 1998 to 2014. And we did some you know, kind of fancy computational text analysis, which I won't go into. Um, but the result of that was that we were able to kind of categorize different kinds of tactics that movement organizations use and how, how prevalent they are in media coverage. You can tell from this graph that you know, still the most common tactic that gets publicity, at least, uh, would be what we call conflictual tactics that are focused on institutional change. So these would be the protests, the marches, the demonstrations um, that are targeting governments or, or companies. Boycotts, for example, would fit in this category. But over time, this is becoming less and less prevalent, less and less common. And 
other kinds of tactics are becoming more prevalent. So for example, mobilizing communities uh, to find like local solutions for environmental problems that they're facing is becoming more, almost just as common now as, you, as conflictual oriented tactics. And um, at the very bottom, also becoming more common are what we call cooperative or collaborative tactics. So this would be where you know, activists sit down you know, and uh, negotiate outcomes with corporations or governments to, to find kind of cooperative solutions to enhance um, environmental protection. So it's interesting to see that, you know, the environmental movement isn't a one, one trick pony. It's very much a diverse movement that also has a diverse set of tactics and it's becoming increasingly diverse. So those are, I think, hopeful facts. Now I'm gonna focus on the negative, which is that um, the problems are getting worse. So we're living in a world in which uh, climate change is very much a threat. We know that climate change is related to emissions that are created by created by humans and organizations that are, are run by humans. And this graph, uh, which comes from uh, uh, one website, ourworldindata.org, um, demonstrates that you know over time, you know, we have a, a rapid increase of the amount of emissions, and that's linked to um, the amount of uh, you know, sort of temperature rises that we see in our environment. So despite the success of environmental activists in grabbing public attention through their tactics, legitimating their cause, you know, we are far from instituting solutions that are making meaningful debt, uh, dent into this particular problem. Um, and I think that is probably the major challenge for environmental activists going forward is how to, how to put a halt to, these, this, uh, to this damage. So I wanna talk about four other particular challenges that are all kind of related to that big one. Uh, the first is, you know, environmental problems are, are systemic. So we know that, uh, you know, climate change is produced not just by one country, it's not just produced by one organization, it's very much a collective problem that results from an economy that thrives based on, on market growth. And that is um, in turn linked to just a, a growth in the, in the amount of pollutants that we put into our environment. And to get, you know, make, to really make a change to that, you have to change the system. Um, but of course, elites and other power holders and governments uh, don't have incentives to do that. It would require some cooperation or collective action among the elites in order to really make a difference in solving that systemic problem. How do activists who are themselves, you know, still a minority of the population, um, you know, get these elite groups of people and organizations to cooperate enough to actually make a, a difference in that systemic problem? I'm not sure we yet have the answer to that. Related to that is a second point, which is that we have to be able to hold uh, the polluters accountable for what they, what they do. I think the environmental movement has been most successful at getting organizations and governments to make commitments to stemming the tide of, of climate change. But commitments don't necessarily immediately at least translate into actual behavioral uh, practice changes in, in the way that we run our economy. And part of that has to do with, you know, who's, who's the organization, who are the group of people who are monitoring and enforcing these commitments. Um, it turns out that I, you know, I, and I tell people that many of our, much of our data on, on, on emissions comes from the organizations themselves. They self-report, you know, how much they're polluting the environment. People are surprised by this, but that's, that reflects the larger problem, which is that we don't have like organizations that go in there and monitor every single um, organization's output. Um, so who monitors and then who enforces that when we live in a society where the state, the, or the government is weakened in their ability to do that, 
that's that's a big a big problem. I think at the movement level, there are two issues I want to talk about. One is coordination at the movement level. So as the movement gets bigger um, and and you see more organizations, more environmental organizations arising, and many of them are kind of differentiated in their particular mission, their strategy that they take. How does that you know lead to a coherent global strategy? Given that climate change is a systemic problem, you know it'd be it'd be great if the environmental movement did kind of uh, cohere around a common strategy. I don't know if that has yet happened. I'll actually kind of pass that over to Katie and Phil to talk more about that. And then the fourth problem challenge I see is fragmentation within the movement. Um, we love the fact that I think that the movement has become divert, diverse and of course the environmental movement wants to be as inclusive as possible so that all voices are heard as, as we seek to solve these problems. At the same time, we know that as the movement becomes more diverse, there's a potential for conflict within the movement in part just created by the fact that you have local organizations that are struggling at, against different problems. Uh, one example that came to mind, uh, there was a great article in the New Yorker this this week that talked about you know local activists in, in Gambia who are struggling uh, for environmental justice and, and, and protection uh, from fisheries that are kind of overfishing and that's destroying their local economy. That's an important problem for them. Uh, but it's not it's not always clear that those local problems are compatible with the goals, the broader goals of the, of the bigger kind of global movement. And so how do we how do we um, be inclusive and have a big tent without leading to complete fragmentation? So I'll stop there. I think you know, I, these are the challenges I I wanted to lay out and I'll pass the baton now to Katie and let her talk about her experience as an activist at the Sierra Club. Wonderful. Uh, thank you so much. It has it's um, fun to kind of be on one end of this work and, and see the trends um, and I'm happy to kind of provide and color in from my perspective um, some reactions and some thoughts on uh, you know directionality I see of the movement. Um, but thanks for having me. My name is Katie McFadden. I'm the deputy director at the Illinois chapter of the Sierra Club. Grateful to be part of this panel, even though I have hair. So I stand out. Um, but I'm gonna I just have a couple visuals that I'm gonna share. So I, I'm gonna share my screen here one second. Um, and uh, just another note about me, I have worked um, in the climate action advocacy space for the past decade. Um, before that, I was a student activist um, around climate issues. So I have kind of seen the evolution just in the past decade of this movement, but, um, kind of been on the front lines of it. And a lot of what um, I do in my role is help um, figure out where we should be pushing forward, what our strategy looks like, um, but also a big part of what I do is um, on the political side and the Sierra Club is unique in that we get involved in elections, we try to endorse and elect candidates who are strong in the environment um, and recognizing the ever increasing um, uh, value of uh, making sure that people who are elected to write and vote on environmental laws um, are as committed to these issues as, as we are. So um, if you don't know the Sierra Club, um, we're the oldest and largest environmental organization in the country. And the reason why I, I'm gonna speak a little bit to the Sierra Club is I think it is a good sort of case study in the evolution of environmental activism. Um, you can really see it in how the Sierra Club looked in, uh, in the past and was founded and sort of what it looks like today. Um, we have over 3 million members across the country. Um, we were founded by John Muir, 
who's on your screen. Um, and if you think about the, you know, when we were founded, we were truly a club. You had to have you had to be referred by at least three other people to get in. Um, and so, you know, we were founded at, based on conservation. Um, John Muir was wanting to conserve the lands um, of this country um, and in a lot of ways, some some pretty racist roots and wanting to protect land, take from some to, to protect um, so that they could be enjoyed largely by white folks um, who were of more privilege. And so recognizing that that's sort of how we started um, and was exclusionary in the way we set up the organization that you had to be referred and kind of know somebody, um, I think looks a lot different than if you were to conjure up in your mind uh, an image of an environmental activist today in the year 2021. Um, you know, I think that looks a lot more like this. Um, this is from the People's Climate March a, a number of years ago, but you know, our movement is so much now recognizing the folks on the front line um, of crisis, as you can see on this um, banner, um, really need to be also on the front lines of the solutions. And so, um, you know, our movement looks a lot younger and and more diverse um, than it did, frankly, on the first Earth Day in 1970. Um, so this is an image I see a lot in my work, but as sort of um, what Braden said, but kind of how I talk about it, which is that we recognize very explicitly in when we're planning campaigns, you know, that these problems are all connected. Um, you know, I got uh, involved when I was a student, as I mentioned, on issues of climate activism. And at that point, I saw very clearly that the only reason why we weren't following what the majority of the world's scientists were telling us we needed to do to have a, a like planet we could live on in the future, which seems like a non-controversial thing, we were not taking action on that because of the things you see on your screen, because of racism, because of economic inequality, because of broken democracy, because there are a few at the top who wanted to continue to profit off the current system and they had the power um, to keep it that way. And so in kind of recognizing that that's where we stand, um, you know, the answer is, is to recognize that we can't just say, well, this whole system's wrong, but only because we're not taking climate action. The whole system is, is having a lot of unintended consequences, or I guess intended consequences, but consequences that are that I would argue are not um, to the benefit of society, including racism, including you know, inaction on climate. Um, and if you know we can't sort of as climate activists only say, well, this is the part that's wrong, we have to acknowledge um, sort of all of those problems um, and also recognize that the solutions are connected. So as I mentioned, these two slides from the Movement Strategy Center are ones that I have seen a number of times we train on, we talk about these things very explicitly um, in the work that we do. Um, the Sierra Club specifically, also when it comes to kind of strategies that we're employing organizationally, um, with the chart that, that you saw, um, you know, the Sierra Club employs really brilliant lawyers, brilliant communication strategists. At the end of the day, we are an organizing shop. We have 3 million members across the country. That's our strength. How do we mobilize people? How do we do grassroots organizing um, so that we can push policy, so that we can elect climate champions, so that we can um, get our cities to take action on climate? Um, so sort of from the local, your town, 
all the way to the federal level. And that's really um, what we see as what can really make change in the system that we're in. Um, and one thing I wanted to show, this is kind of, um, it's an it's a image and a, a thing that we use a lot, but I thought it might be interesting to folks because um, a lot of, as I mentioned, um, you know, we're, we have just the environmental movement. There are enough issues to work on just there, right? We can work on water pollution, air pollution, um, you know, migratory species. There's so many things. And then you add in, oh yeah, also we need to recognize that we got to work on racism and income inequality and, break, you know, fixing our democracy. And so sort of half, a lot of times people ask me, you know, how do you figure out where to aim? Um, you know, how do you figure out what you're working on and, and what defines success and how you're pushing, um, you know, all of your, your um, resources. And, you know, that's a lot of what my job is, but I wanted to put up this visual because uh, this is what we use a lot of times to determine that. So you may have heard the, the um, term theory of change. I always say a theory of change is how are we going to win? What do we want? Who has the power to give it to us? How do we get them to do it? Um, and we have to be able to answer those questions. And I think this is an example of how we're getting even more sophisticated. You know, instead of just saying this thing is bad, let's take to the streets and just assume that enough people in the streets are going to fix it. We're getting a lot more specific um, and strategic and tactical in our work. And so I like this house example because the roof is um, the tactics. So this is, as Braden mentioned, it's the things you see. It's the rallies, it's the press conferences, it's the op-eds in your local newspapers. Um, but in the house analogy, the roof is the last thing that you build. So when we're building a campaign, we start with that foundation, we build the house, and then we get to the roof, the tactics. So when you're seeing that march or that you know article in the paper, you're seeing the product of a whole house that we've built, um, deciding on what tactic we want to take forward. Um, and in particular, um, that I think that is a new addition to this house model is what we call the foundation, recognizing that um, you have to start with the impact of communities, um, the folks who are on the front line of the struggle that um, of the environmental struggle. You have to start with those internal and external partners. We're very clear that we don't oftentimes, if ever, have the power on our own to win the things we want. We need to bring together coalitions. We need to recognize who else needs to be in the room. And it's with those partners, with those communities that we actually develop the goals. So you'll recognize the goal comes after engaging those, those folks. Um, and then that's where you build the other pieces of the campaign. Um, the you know, target, who is it that can give you what you want? Um, secondary targets, target audience, it's how you um, can get at the target, the messaging, kind of what are we saying we're for, and then we built the tactics. So um, just a, a point about our strategy here. I also want to note one thing that has, um, that I think is a challenge point that I agree with a lot is just um, the last four years um, having, uh, you know, living in a country that was led by a climate denier um, did mean that we, um, as a movement, kind of had a common enemy. Um, this was a president who also was alienating other, um, you know, constituencies, immigrant groups, um, labor, as well as environment. Um, and so as we were all sort of trying to hang on and protect the progress that we had made to date, that I think brought organizations and coalitions together around that. Now that we have a president, in, um, President Biden, who has said he is 
you know, for bold action on climate. He is for, you know, labor, um, uh, you know, working families and, and a living wage. He is, you know, for immigrant justice. It's a little bit um, that there's going to be a potential trap to fall in to believe in sort of zero sum politics and that we can't all push forward and that we're going to have to kind of fight amongst ourselves. And so I see that personally work from my vantage point as um, a pretty big uh, threat right now. Um, and then very briefly, you know, we have had so many local wins, um, but, uh, and so I, I put up this graph about coal plants retired to date. This is just a statistic from the United States. Um, you know, even given the last four years, we have made a lot of progress and that has been at the local level as noted. Um, but I agree with the recognition that these are all cities and states that have actually committed to 100% clean energy. And the question is to how do we hold that accountable and how do we actually get from commitment to an action is largely something we're having to figure out as we go along. Um, you know, it's wonderful how how many states, how many um, cities have said they're making this commitment, but what does activism look like when, frankly, the politicians are on your side when they say you're for the thing, um, whether it's the president or the governor or the, the mayor, um, but actually getting them, um, you know, can we pivot our, our systems that we built for activism to, to actually work for inside the system in enacting what we want? So, um, you know, I'll just end with this one thing. Uh, that I always think of when I see, you know, the scary um, climate graphs and, and where we're at and, and just recognizing um, that we have so much to do uh, to take action on climate, you know, the the politics part is, is not going to be easy. It never has been. I don't think it ever will be. But the scientific part, I mean, it is it is just scientifically necessary that we get there. And so recognizing how how fragile and important the next few years are. Um, I'm looking forward to what's next. Thank you both um, for for the wonderful uh, presentations and comments. Um, uh, it seems that uh, Phil Radford will not be able to make it today, but um, we, we will continue with uh, just the two of you. Um, we're already getting a lot of questions in, and, and I want to start out with maybe a, a very general one, um, and that is um, if you look at the, the changing landscape of, of climate change, activism, but also policy, um, where do you see the, the sort of biggest challenges for um, activist organizations in pushing this agenda forward so that we actually see substantial changes? I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, Braden's chart, which essentially said activism's gone up, but, you know, climate mitigation hasn't actually, you know, sort of happened at the same time. So where, where do you see the biggest uh, challenges looking into the future uh, for um, activist organizations in driving climate action? Do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I'll reiterate a couple um, notes. So I think that, um, first off, I, I definitely agree with that the fact that we have a big challenge in front of us we are not where we need to be from a, a carbon emission standpoint um but i also think we have made more progress than perhaps was shown on that graph so uh it's something to think about but uh where i see i think urgency is number one like uh we're here's the shifts that we have made we are in a place now where in most places in the united states of america wind energy is cheaper 
than fossil fuels. Um, we are in a place, you know, we've, we've sort of, um, we've made a shift in the electric sector. Like I mentioned, the coal plant retirements, a lot of those fights have been community by community, community saying, we don't want this in our backyard anymore. Um, and so recognizing what does now this transition look like? Because um, as you all well know, and folks watching well know, um, the day that wind becomes cheaper than coal, it's not like you flip a switch and all the coal plants disappear and all the wind farms, you know, uh, economics by themselves do not fix this problem. You have to have the activism, you have to have the laws in place to actually make that shift, even when the economics are in your favor. And so I think that transition and ensuring that it's as quick as it needs to be um, is, is really critical because um, we do not have I have time. Um, and then second, I think, I, you know, I mentioned this, but in the accountability and in the recognizing that there's not a zero sum, you know, we frankly, you know, a really specific example is here in Illinois, we are getting ready to pass um, what is the boldest and most equity centered piece of climate legislation that any state has ever even considered here in Illinois, we're getting ready. And we frankly um, lost a year of, of progress and work on that, you know, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so recognizing how are we packaging and, and um, talking about solutions to climate as recovery mechanisms. Um, how are these, you know, how are we moving forward uh, in that frame um, as, uh, you know, recognizing that climate action is also um, a way to address racial injustice, which is also of increasing importance this year, um, given the year that we had in 2020. And so, you know, the more that these can be seen and advocated on together, um, you know, we can we can take action. But, you know, those are other uh, things that deserve, you know, COVID-19 recovery and racial injustice are things that deserve a lot of attention right now. And so recognizing that we're not fighting against that, we're not saying us first, we're saying us together. Um, and that is really going to be key going forward. I'll, um, yeah, so I feel like my job to be um, more of the pessimist, and that's why, that's why I put up, the, uh, put up that chart. Uh, not because I don't think we can't make progress, but more just because I think that the re that there, uh, we have to kind of deal with um, the reality, which is that um, which is that this is a global problem, and and so global solutions will be probably the only way that we'll really be able to to get where we need to be in order to reverse some of the damages being caused by climate change. And if you remember that graph, well, I'll just summarize one of the main points of that graph is that the US has more or less um, stabilized as a contributor to emissions. Um, we're not getting worse, but we're not getting that much better um, over recent years. The EU um, is getting, they've actually decreased their share of emissions. The two parts of the globe where you see the biggest, well, the major part where you see the, the biggest increases are in Asia, particularly from China. And that's not to point the finger at China. This is just to say that, you know, if you could, if you resolve the problem in one country, um, you potentially, you know, um, you still have um, ongoing uh, pollution, poll pollutants being emitted in other countries. And so we really have to figure out how to, to combat this at the global level as when there is no, you know, governance mechanism. Uh, there's no, you know, for example, no world government that would allow us to pass the kind of policy that we would need to control those countries. One, on sort of the, the side of hope, I think that 
we do have more support in the business community now for combating climate change than we probably have ever had. And I, I'm hopeful that, you know, where governments lack the ability to, to, to do something that has teeth, the, the business community may recognize that it's in their long-term interest to do something. And so my, I guess my hope is that the activists and will, will, and the business community will, will, or the business community will get on the same page as the activists. So the activists um, need to be targeting the business community as much as they are governments, recognizing that if you can get the business community to put pressure on governments, it's probably going to have a, have a bigger impact. Um, you know, you still have the enforcement problem, the collective action problem that results from businesses all wanting to do what's individually good for them, but it, you know, they have to be a part of the solution if we're going to make you know something that works. Katie, do you see? Um, this is, a, is an interesting question around, you know, sort of what what should be the primary targets or partners for um, for organizations like the Sierra Club? Do you see businesses as partners or as um, as targets that you have to hold accountable? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. It depends on the business. Um, but I, I, I have a couple thoughts. One is I, I do credit the movement of the business community to be envir more environmentally or caring more about their environmental image or their environmental footprint. You know, I give activists a lot of credit as to being the source of that. Even the times when perhaps the business community wasn't the primary target. I do think we live fundamentally excuse me, in a different world. And it's because of the activists who have made this such a kitchen table issue. <coughs> excuse me. Um, and so there's absolutely a role for businesses to play and to lead. Um, I personally believe that given the gravity of the situation when it comes to climate action, that voluntary commitments from the business community um, will always fundamentally fall short and we have to have uh, government frameworks in place um, to get the emissions reductions that we need both, you know, in the US and globally. Um, but to the extent that there are partners and or sorry, uh, corporations who are willing to be partners and are making these pledges of which there are many and those are driving the sector, you know, I don't want me to discount that. Um, but I just I think it's just fundamentally always going to fall short. So it's, it's never quite enough. This might be a, a good transition, but we have a, a good number of questions that um, sort of center around the uh, questions of um, uh, climate justice, um, social justice, the extent to which the environmental movement is sort of inclusive or has become more elitist and, and likes to work with, uh, with the powerful and wealthy. Um, where, where do you see the What's your assessment, first of all? Is, is this something that has become a blind spot for environmentalism? Um, and is there a institutional barrier for that? Is there uh, a way to sort of remedy that and, and make uh, climate justice um, uh, more central to, uh, to environmentalism? Sure, my, my thoughts on that are, um, I always like to say working for the Sierra Club, it feels like I have one foot inside the door and one foot outside the door. And sort of what I mean by that is, you know, we have 3 million members, as I mentioned, we have numerous partners on the ground. We have, you know, 
people in every city, you know, in America, essentially, um, who are really holding us true to being a grassroots organization. Um, but on the other side of the coin, we do, you know, endorse candidates, which means we put our seal of approval on a certain candidate and, um, you know, we lobby legislators, which means fundamentally, you know, working through a legislative process is fundamentally means compromise. And, uh, you know, that's how we write laws and that's how, you know, a lot of times lobbying works and, um, you know, a lot of times endorsing candidates. They may not be perfect on everything or exactly where we want them to be. And so if we decide to engage in those sorts of tactics, they're you know, always going to be, you know, not uncredible claims that, you know, we are not, uh, you know, as pure or, you know, true enough to those folks on the ground if we engage in things that some folks see as, you know, ultimately meaning compromise. And so, you know, I've had to learn to uh, be comfortable with that, but also be be cognizant of that constantly because it's not enough to say to just say well this is inherently compromised you know you have to stay true to where our values are but also where the science is and where the numbers are and where we need to be when we're in those spaces but also you know responsive to the folks on the ground um i'll also say you know the sierra club is not the environmental movement we are one organization and so recognizing that you know, there are a lot of environmental organizations, there are a lot of community based environmental organizations, and that's a good thing. You know, if we were all the same, then we wouldn't be a vibrant movement. Um, so, you know, recognizing too that like we all have a different role to play. Yeah, this is sort of the, the flip side of the earlier point I made, which is that, you know, it, it absolutely is true that uh, solutions to, uh, you know, climate change issues, not just climate change, all environmental problems, you know, require um, in, in some way getting the business community to on board and cooperate or, you know, or you're not going to make a dent into the problems. But we have to remember that businesses, corporations are not democratic institutions. You know, they're designed by nature to pursue very specific causes, that cause mean to make money for, the, for them and their shareholders. And, you know, for many um, of these organizations, it's to grow, to you know, to uh, create shareholder, grow shareholder value, and those, those that that purpose is oftentimes, you know, um, uh, opposed to you know, our 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 desire to be op democratically open, and that that limits the voices who have a say, and especially voices that have been historically ignored, um, uh, which are also the voices, who, the people who tend to be most damaged um, by the issues we're dealing with uh, regarding uh, climate change and other environmental pollutions. And so I agreed with Katie that, you know, the grassroots has to be a part of this in order to make a vibrant movement, but also to ensure that whatever solutions we arrive at are, are solutions that don't just benefit, you know, the elites, but that they include, uh, you know, they're also looking out for local communities of all types. Um, and that's actually one reason why, you know, um, I asked um, Katie if she was interested in talking on this panel, because I know that the Sierra Club is is a, a movement that is a movement organization that's committed to the grassroots. I won't I don't want to name a name here, but I'll just describe an experience I had when I was um, at one of these conferences a while ago, uh, a couple years ago, and uh, eating lunch with somebody who worked at another environmental organization, environmentalist organization. And the person I was eating lunch with said, oh, yeah, we don't use the word activist in our organization. 
um, we're look we're a solutions oriented organization. <laughs> you probably might be able to guess which group this is, and it was because they 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 believed that the term activist um, would scare away uh, the businesses that they wanted on their side. And I thought, you know, I mean, I understand kind of their their uh, mission and their their purpose and why they do that, but I also thought, you know, if that becomes the face of the environmental movement, it's going to significantly damage. The ability of the grassroots to organize and do something collectively. Um, people don't want to participate in, you know, uh, marches, protests, red letters to the editor or anything else unless they feel like their voices matter. Um, people need to feel that their agency counts for something. And I think that uh, that's the, perhaps the major reason why the grassroots needs to be a part of solution seeking um, alongside with you know, um, looking for solutions with those business elites. Um, had uh, one very specific question, maybe as a follow-up, um, and it's asking for for how. So, you know, how can activists, academics, researcher, uh, work better with marginalized communities to mitigate and adapt climate change that directly impacts them? And I think the 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 question of um, does the grassroots include um, uh, Black, Latinx, um, Indigenous communities um, enough uh, to really sort of advance those those um, issues, um, and how do you how do you actually accomplish that when, on the other hand, you you have to or you want to engage uh, with um, economic and political elites that that might not be as interested in that. Yeah, I can go first on this one, and then uh, Katie can offer a, a better answer than the one that I offer. And I say better because I'm just going to offer an anecdote that I just read about like yesterday, so it's it's kind of fresh in my mind. And this relates to that New Yorker article about fishing in in Gambia, and the the sort of the conflict that is occurring there within the environmental movement is that many environmental organizations are you know, trying to push for food uh, foods, food types that are not so bad for the environment. Um, and if you're looking at protein, um, you know, uh, beef, uh, pork, and other, you know, kinds of protein are oftentimes the worst for the environment. There's a lot of uh, emissions, a lot of gases that are, are bad for climate change. But fishing has often been kind of put out there as like potentially more, more sustainable kind of food. And um, and so these kind of mass fisheries, um, you know, can, can, can exist that don't do nearly as much damage. But it turns out that the major food source for many of these fisheries are is called fish meal. And it's um, a kind of a product that's created from like local fish fisheries where they'll take, you know, local fish that are, maybe people don't want to eat, you know, in restaurants. Um, or you, know, you wouldn't buy at the grocery store, but but they do create good food for the other fish. Anyway, long story short, um, they have created like massive fish mill production plants that are essentially destroying like the local villages and uh, fishing sources for for uh, the, in the Gambian um, communities and economy. And so as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, what does an activist do and like locally oriented? Because the solution that's being put out there by the like the broader environmental movement is one that's actually doing real damage to the local uh, people living in this country, living in this, these communities. 
and people who are often people of color. And so the solution is one that is at odds with their way of living. I don't have a solution. I'm just pointing out that there, that the discussions that we talk about at a global level have to include the local communities that are often suffering the brunt of environmental damages. Yeah, that's a great example. Um, and I'll say thank you for the question. I love being asked, how do I help in a real and authentic way that's actually helping? That's the best question I could get. Um, I would say when it comes to um, following and supporting frontline environmental justice organizations, the first thing I would say is just to listen. Um, we have a lot to learn from these communities um, and, and to uh, find ways to support them. So, you know, maybe you have read about the environmental injustice on Chicago South Side and Southeast Side, you know, attend an event that they put on, you know, go to these communities and and sort of show up and, and be ready to support, but like without an agenda, without an idea, without a preconceived notion like, oh, I have like this skill to add or I have this skill to add before even knowing what they need. Um, and so, you know, maybe that they actually, you know, if you're like, how can I help? And you ask that and maybe they need like help entering data or making phone calls or something that, you know, is maybe not your skill set, but is their need. And so maybe all, you know, they just need money and you giving, you know, $5 a month or whatever you can afford um, is the thing to most help. But I think building true and just relationships um, and, and, uh, understandings, you know, assuming that you're not from one of these communities um, is is important because I think a, a lot of times a trap that I see folks coming into is um, either one just coming and just like wanting to kind of harvest for information or coming and sort of coming with a preconceived notion of like, here, I can solve this thing for you. And, and the reality is that communities that are on the front lines of these injustices are a wealth of solutions and information and stories. And, you know, they have so much to add. And so if the question is, you know, how do I help? Um, I think, you know, really going to the source, listening, at, you know, attend, like I said, these folks put on Zoom town halls and events where you can really hear from them and learn firsthand, um, and you know not only through news articles but from them directly, um, and and figure out ways to support. Because, um, like I said, they, these are um, you know vibrant communities, but they're also you know very smart and understand these solutions and are are ready to make the change. Um, and so it's it's important that we that we listen and follow their lead. Okay. Um, Maybe maybe just building on that, the and the, there's been you know a couple of questions around that. To what extent um, do you think the uh, a sort of incrementalist approach, where you you try and work with particular actors on sort of fairly confined um, problems, um, and sort of uh, radical incrementalism is sometimes the, the, the term that you hear, right? It's sort of nudging towards toward climate action. Um, is um, is a sufficient strategy for uh, for addressing the fundamental problem, or is 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 there a, a need for advocating for a, a more systemic change in in the way that our economic system, our political system, actually operates? Um, um, it's a great question, question. <laughs> and um, I guess 
I guess what I would say is is it, it actually it's inspired by something Katie was uh, describing, which is the importance of you know engaging with local issues as a way to mobilize people. Um, we you know we know from lots of research on on social movements and activism that people get drawn in to a movement because uh, they there's an issue that they really feel passionate about, and for most people who are you know getting into the environmental movement, it's not going to be because you know that they see that chart I put up about emissions, or they're not. <laughs> they see the chart about rising temperatures. They're going to look at those and feel hopeless, right? They're not. They're not going to feel like they can have an impact. But when they see a local issue that they care about and they see how it's impact, having an impact on their local local community, they do get engaged. And so one reason why radical incrementalism works is because it's the it's the door that opens up the uh, you know access to a bigger engagement with that, the activist community. We need everybody in, like the environmental movement needs everybody involved if it's going to if we're gonna have radical change. But you don't get to radical change without getting people involved first with what matters to them most, which is their you know their homes, their communities, um, how how it's affecting their, their personal lives. Yeah, I totally agree. That's exactly how we think about it um, as campaigners and as organizers. Um, we and also, uh, you know, I live and breathe the radical incrementalism, right? And one city here and one coal plant down here and one state legislation here. Um, but I also, it, over the past couple of years, I've recognized I'm I'm not sure that you have to name them as mutually exclusive. And what I mean is this is, you know, over the past couple of years, especially when we've had such a hostile federal administration, when we've seen us unprecedented attacks on, you know, our bedrock environmental laws, things we did not think were controversial, like, you know, the Clean Water Act. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think has really brought to the forefront in, in which, you know, what, a couple of years ago, if you polled, if you showed me all the polling for candidates who were running for office in Illinois and, um, you know, what issues they found mattered most to voters in this state, you know, environmental was like maybe in the top 10, whereas in 2018 and in, in the midterms, it was in the top three in, you know, every congressional district in the state. And so, you know, recognizing that I really think we have had a a real big change in how these issues are perceived by decision makers in the last four years. Um, and I, you know, I think in part because of the administration, but in part because we had been building a movement and a narrative for such a long time to feel like not only were we not going to make progress, we were taking a significant steps backwards. I do think was an inflection point for a lot of people to say, oh my gosh, this is now like one of the top things I care about in the world because it's gotten to this point and they're kind of educated enough to know. And so recognizing that in that moment, you know, there are things that they could do, you know, to sort of try to push at the federal level, whether it's a march or a rally or whatever the thing is, but we were there and other groups were there providing ways that they could, you know, push their mayor, push, you know, their local state legislature, you know, flip their congressional district to now be, represented by someone who believed in climate change. You know, those are really concrete things that are personal for people um, that they want to get involved in that are not mutually exclusive to like showing up in the streets on a Sunday also and, and pushing for that. 
but it does feel like you know sort of incrementalism that we had been doing for like you know decades had this inflection point um in the past couple of years and i think um is ultimately also you know gotten us to, to where we are in this specific moment in time well, um, I want to uh, sort of shift gears a little bit, and, and maybe it, it builds on this sort of changing environment. Um, um, there's been a, a uh, arguably a, a sort of a lost period in in, in the U.S. with um, a lot of um, um, climate denial, misinformation, polarization that that has um, sort of really impeded significant action here. Um, and at the same time, there you see the rise of more authoritarian governments and uh, around the world um, that make it much more difficult for uh, for climate activists to to be effective. Um, is this what do you make of that challenge? Um, is this something that we're getting out of? Um, does it require a a different uh, set of targets? Um, does it require a different uh, set of tactics to, to be effective? Well, um, I was waiting for Katie to answer that question. <laughs> so, um, I mean, I think, yeah, I mean, obviously it's, I think it's had um, the polarization, but also, um, the term that like a lot of uh, people are uh, social scientists are now using is political sectarianism, which is sort of like this idea that we just kind of go to our own little groups and we only listen to people who think like us. We only talk to people who have the same political beliefs as us. That that's a that's a threat to democracy um, in the sense that we're not able to actually have cross conversations that look for real solutions to any of our problems. So I would say that it's a it's a it's a threat to um, you know making a, a democracy functional. Um, but yeah, of course it's going to be actual also a threat to um, searching for environmental causes. You can't you can't push for a meaningful change if half the country doesn't believe that change is necessary because they're in climate denial. Um, so yeah, I mean I used to think that you know, education you know, sort of People are logical and education is the answer to that. I still and I don't believe in education anymore, too. But I think, you know, along with that, we have to think of um, more creative solutions that involve, you know, kind of breaking down these silos that have been created. And uh, I don't have a lot to say about that, but, but I think that is something that needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my work is limited to the US, but it is entirely dependent on a functioning democracy um and you know the, the types of things that we do are basically at, at, at the core at the core what we do is give people skills and motivation to engage in the democratic process to push for environmental action whether that's you know voting or attending a public hearing or attending a city council meeting or um you know showing up to give public comment on an administrative EPA rule, you know, which is like a very sort of like a specific thing. And we have to, you know, give the narrative as to why this is important and, and why it matters. And, you know, all of almost all of the things that we're doing are encouraging, you know, people to engage in democracy. And, you know, to me, that's very inspiring and powerful. And so, you know, 
the first thing of that is we also need to protect our democracy. And that is a thing that the environmental movement has recognized, the Sierra Club has recognized. Um, but another thing I'll say is, you know, as as there are shifts with with any campaign, you know, whether it be, you know, now at some point we have a friendly administration, at some point we don't, at some point we have a friendly governor, at some point we don't, you know, some there's always shifting landscape when you're in activism. There's always, you know, maybe, you know, you have a corporate target and they get bought by another one or, you know, there's everything's always changing and that's part of your calculus. And so, you know, when we had uh, when we knew that for four years we were going to be on the defensive at the federal level, um, you know, we pivoted to a state-based strategy and we were focusing on passing legislation in the states um, when, you know, and, and that just to the point where like, I'm almost kind of rusty at how to do federal organizing. I'm having to reteach myself that because, you know, that's just part of the nature of the work is you have to be adaptable to the circumstances. Our job is to find where are the openings and run for them and, you know, the pressure points and, and, you know, that's how we're able to have successes that we're, we're having. And so, you know, to the extent that there are changing landscapes in any sort of sense, you know, you have to adapt to that. And if that means, if that means a literal threat to democracy, perhaps focusing and uh, on pre preserving our democracy has to come first. And we actually just stop talking about the environment and just focus on that in that you know country or, or whatnot, because that's what's needed in order to take action. Okay. Um, I want to sort of bring us um, close to the end. And uh, there were a number of um, questions that are around sort of focusing public attention, the, the sort of broader, more broadly societal institutions on the the urgency of climate action and, and the urgency of the challenge and not let um on the one hand sort of distractions like um you know the denial of scientific facts um sort of get in the way uh, but also sort of mitigate against sort of more escapist utopian ideas of um you know let's just ditch the world and colonize mars or you know look for the silver bullet tech, technical solution that that can fix it all. How what what is how do you see activism and and sort of environmental organizations setting an agenda that really focuses on the uh, focuses everyone on the on the goal and on the urgency of action? Um, what are what are some of the options that are successful for doing that that you see? Well, Easy question. Uh, oh. Yeah, <laughs> sure. How um, do we? I'll just. I think. I think a good place, actually, maybe a final comment from me on this is that I think that you know the future of the environmental, um, environmental activism is you know younger people. So my kids and younger are obviously you know the group of people who are going to be most affected by by climate change or any kind of environmental destruction, and so therefore you know. Uh, getting those that group of people involved because they feel passionate and they feel about it is essential to to, to solving this problem. And I think you know that's where also I'm most hopeful because you know when I look at the pictures of the climate marches, when I, of, the, of the climate strike, um, you see young people's faces. It's not just Greta Thunberg; she's obviously an icon at this point, but you also see lots of you know lots of young people, kids who are on the front line, and I think that. You know, for all of our faults, humans have a soft spot for children, and as they see the faces of young, of young people passionately arguing for this, 
it will also have an impact on the old people like us, like me. Yeah, I cannot, um, I cannot disagree uh, with finding hope in the next generation. Uh, man, they are cool right now. It's fun to see what they're doing. Um, but I also think that, you know, that alone is not going to get us there. And frankly, this is in the hands of people like Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and the CEOs of the top companies right now, because um, we can't wait. We don't have time. If we wait for the young people to grow up, um, we will lose. So, uh, you know, I hope that we're able to leverage that, but also recognizing that um, the people in power now are, are actually the most important um, because uh, we, we can't do this and we simply have no more time. Thank you. Thank you, um, Katie. Thank you, Brayden, um, for a, a very um, frank conversation. And I, I think we, we um, can, to answer the question, saving the world, um, we're not sure, but we have to try regardless, right? So um, there, there's no way around it. Um, so thank you for joining today. Um, there were a number of um, uh, questions that asked for a specific sort of research um, uh, around activism, and I would direct all of those who asked to to Braden, who, who knows this um, body of research really well, um, and just reach out to the panelists directly. Um, we will um, resume our um, series um, next uh, Tuesday um, on uh, March 9th. And uh, we're going to welcome uh, Mike uh, Hume, who's a um, professor at the University of Cambridge, um, um, who has a, a long history and experience in, in climate uh, change uh, research. Um, and he's going to talk about um, why storytelling is key to climate action. Um, so I hope um, to see many of you back then um, for our series on, on climate action at, uh, at Buffett uh, with our co-sponsors at ISIN and uh, uh, Sustain You. So thanks very much for joining and we'll see you next week. Stay well. Thanks, Klaus. Thanks, Katie.